Genesis 17, as we continue in a study, if you've not been with us on Wednesday nights, we're going chapter by chapter through this portion of the book, and we're focusing in on uh, the section right now that's talking about Abraham's life. Some of you have heard the story about the father who was dealing with a child and trying to teach a child a life's lesson, so he put the child up by on a porch area, and he coaxed the child, now don't be afraid, jump, you know, and I'll catch you, and the little boy was apprehensive, and finally the little boy agreed. He jumped, and when he jumped, the father stepped back and let him fall flat on the ground. And the father looked at me and said, that'll be a lesson for you. Never trust anyone. What a terrible lesson to teach a child. Just terrible. And the word of God, especially in chapter 17, is talking about trust, 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 trust. In chapter 17, it's interesting how this whole passage unfolds and where it's placed that Abraham, who is a man of faith, is having somewhat of a crisis in his life as it's going on. Let me, let's set up the scene for Genesis 17. In his life, what's happening here is there's a conversation that takes place, and it, most of this chapter is a conversation, almost the entirety of it, between God and Abraham, one of the lengthiest they've they've had that we know about. And in this chapter, if you were to go to the end of chapter 16 and then go to chapter 17, you'll see by comparing the ages of Abraham that it's like 13 years after what happened in chapter 16. Whether he had any phone calls, whether he had any texts from God in between, we don't know of any. But there's this gap of 13 years. And what had happened in chapter 16 is he had had that occasion where his wife and her servant had come and said, well, God promised you a child, you want a child, and Sarah's like, I want you to have a child. So they came and they advised him to take Hagar, the servant, as a surrogate and have a child by her, which was legal at that time, which was customary that you could use a servant to raise a child. And so he and the servant had relationships, she gets pregnant, immediately thereafter, Sarah, if you recall, becomes very bitter, very upset said about it, and she who came up with the idea, who does, who does Sarah lash out at? Do you remember we talked about this last week? She lashes out at him. She says, God judge between you and me for what you did. Wait a minute. She told him to do this. And so they, um, it, it ends up then Hagar has a child, and the, the chapter ends up that Hagar's son, who if you've studied Bible, you remember his name, Ishmael, and he becomes the father of who? all the the Arab nations and all those others who in time become the avowed enemies of the Jews. And so there's a whole bunch of complications that come out of this whole thing. And so the story is wrapping up in chapter 16 that Abraham has a son and 13 years later God speaks to him about this boy and about more issues of having other sons. And so this is, as we've mentioned, a lengthy conversation. Actually, this is the third one. The third one that we know that God spoke to him and had this conversation with him, and it expands upon the previous two conversations. If we were to make a comparison, which I would invite you to do, we're going to head to chapter 12 before we uh, go into chapter 13. We're going back, or chapter 17, we're going back to chapter 12 for a moment, and we're going to make some comparisons. And I want you to catch in chapter 12, when God first spoke to Abraham some 20, 25 years earlier, God is speaking to him in Genesis 12, and this is when God first called him from from his home country uh, out of the Middle East and takes him from Ur to, um, to the, what we call the promised land. And when he's arriving, God is going to speak to him and say, okay, uh, during that trip, God's going to say to him, I want to really use you and bless you. Now in Genesis chapter 12, this is the first time that he's getting promises from God. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Okay, the Lord said unto Abram, get you out of your country and from your kindred, from your father's house and unto... Now, now he starts giving promises. What's the first thing God promised in this passage? 
okay? Well, he's going to promise them a land. I'm going to show you a land. And then he promises, what did you say in verse 2? I'm going to make of you a great nation, okay? And then of you as an individual, I'm going to bless you, make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. You're going to have an impact on others. And I'm going to give you protection. Whoever blesses you, I will. And whoever curses you, I want to curse them. So you have in Genesis 12 all these different uh, promises that are come in a very in a very convenient, quick synopsis. He says, "Okay, this is what I'm promising you." Then several years later, go to chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God reiterates some of this promise. In Genesis 15, we read from after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham and said unto him, "Stop fearing. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward." And he said, "Lord, hey, wait a minute. I'm going childless." Verse two. And this is the time that Abraham offers to say, "Hey, I know of a customary plan that." I I could adopt somebody. He could become my child and my heir. And the one he chooses, according to verse 2, is who? Eliezer, his servant, his trusted servant, who we'll read about later on in Genesis as well. And so God says to him, no. He says, behold to me, you have given no... Abraham says, behold to me, you have given no seed, and no one is born in my house should be the heir. And the Lord said, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this shall not be your heir, not Eliezer, but he that shall come from where? If you look at verse 4, out of your own body, out of your own bowels. You're going to father the one who's going to be the heir. And he brought him forth. And then verse 5 he says, look now towards the heavens and the, number, and the stars to number them. And he says, you can't. And what's the promise here? So shall your seed shall be. Okay, so in Genesis 15, he's adding on and he's saying, okay, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. When he, and he clarifies, it's going to be somebody that is going to be an actual biological offspring. That's the first time that this promise is made this way. And he says, then you're going to have many different offspring. They're going to number as the stars. So, he, so not only will you, will you sire a child, but that child's going to live. Again, now you and I don't you and I don't appreciate this. You know the the natality rate in this time period is real high, and so this promise of you're going to have a child, he's going to raise to an age where he can have his own children and they can have children. This idea of many generations is a phenomenal promise to them at that time. And he goes on if you look a little bit more, and it says he believed God, and God talks to him some more. And then he has the covenant, and he goes on a little bit further. Go down to verse 13. He adds a little bit more information, and he said, Know of a surety that your seed shall be strangers in the land that is not theirs. In other words, they're going to end up in another country, taken out of their land for a period of time. And he goes on, and he adds in verse 13, They shall end up in slavery for how long? Okay, 400 years. And so God's giving very specific details here that he's added. And then he says, after that period of time, watch the promise. And also that nation whom they shall serve, will I, he's going to judge it. And afterwards, your children shall come out with what? Down in verse 14. What are they going to come out with? 
great substance. In other words, they're going to plunder the nation that had basically um, been holding them in slavery. So you've got a rescue and reward promise. And then he goes on and he says, starting with verse 18, in fact, here's the land I'm going to give you. And he says in verse 18, unto your seed have I given this land. And he goes from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates. And he lists all the different territory. Now that's the promise that Abraham has in his back pocket. That's when in chapter 16, Abraham responds and Abraham knows that he's going to have a child. It's going to be his child. Obviously, he's told that to Sarah. And then Sarah comes up with, there's been no promise that I would be the mother. And she's right. Up to this point, it is not stated that she will be the mother. And so that whole idea of that poor advice, which, you know, there's a lot of issues with that already that aren't wise, but they're trying to create the environment. They're trying to manipulate the situation. They know God said it's going to be Abraham's biological seed. Never said anything about Sarah up to this point. They go through that whole fiasco of Hagar. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, after the boy now is 13 years of age, and frankly, could Abraham be sitting back in his mind saying, Ishmael's the seed. Ishmael's the one. And the, the fact is, he could be. He could be because he's not, in, in fact, go down in the chapter, and when God says, you're going to have another son, his response is, when Abraham says in verse 18, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Take Ishmael. He is of my seed. He is my biological son. And so we've done, you know, it's, it's worked out. He's 13 years old. And so in chapter 17, God's going to give more information and he's going to expand upon his promise and he's going to explain it a little bit more in depth. And so in chapter 17, when God starts giving the promise, we read in verse 1, when Abraham was 90 years old, 99, excuse me, the Lord appeared and said, I am almighty God, walk before me, be perfect. I will make a covenant between us and will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham falls on his face out of shock, out of dismay, out of uh, humility. And he says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And God goes on and says something a little bit different in verse 4. He says, you shall be the father of what? many nations. What has been the promise up to this point? You will be a great nation. Now he expands it that you're going to be the father of many nations. And he doesn't say it but once. Go down to verse 5. He makes comment to that. He says, you shall be a father of many nations. He says it again. I will make you exceeding fruitful. In verse 6, I will make nations out of you. And we know that what happens historically because we know the end of the story uh, in many ways. He is not only the father of the Jews, but he's also the father of what other nations? Well, all of, all of those other nations in the Middle East, okay? The, uh, you know, the Amorites and the, and the Kenites were so considered some of them later on. And you have uh, the Edomites, excuse me. They were and many of those others that claim, and even today, there's many nations that claim Abraham to be their father. Well, the, here's the passage that expanded on that promise, but he didn't stop there. He goes on and he says, okay, and I'm going to establish my covenant with you, uh, between me and you, verse 7, your seed after you in their generations and the everlasting, and I will give unto you your seed, a land where you are a stranger. Now he's talking again, okay? Oh, I missed it in verse 6 when I was reading here. At the end of verse 6, king shall come out of you. 
So your, your descendants are going to be royalty. And then this royalty is also they're going to have an everlasting covenant. And then he adds you're going to have the land of Canaan. All this region in that Middle East which is again stated elsewhere but now he's expanding upon it. And then he makes a statement that in the Old Testament would be very, very uh, pointed and poignant more than you and I would catch today. I will be their God. Okay, and remember now, in Old Testament thinking, oftentimes, gods were limited to a certain region, and they were very localized, and he's making it very clear, I'm committing to them, I'm going to be able to take care of them no matter what, and I'm going to be their lasting deity, and his commitment, his covenant concept all the way through. Go down to verse 15, and the Lord said, as for Sarai, your wife, she's not going to be called Sarai anymore, but we're going to call her Sarah, and I will bless her and give you a son, and this is the first time it's stated. The son will come of her. And he goes on, he says, yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham is so moved by this that he falls down and does what? He laughs. Out of sheer joy that she's going to have a baby? Well, look at the next phrase. Does he indicate that he's laughing out of joy or astonishment? Amazement. Uh, of wondering, like, are you kidding me? I mean, seriously, think about it. You know, they're, they're up in years now. God made this promise some 25 years earlier that they were going to, you know, that there's going to be a child. And now all these years, all, the only thing that's happened with him and Sarah over these years is they've gotten older. And he's going, really? Now, now you're promising that she's going to be the mother of the child? And he's laughing, and God basically says, and he, and he makes a comment. Shall a child be born unto him? I'm 99 years old, and she's 90 years old. And he said, oh, that Ishmael might be the one that you would use. He's out of my loins. And God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son indeed. And you shall call his, not only just, not only a child, but a son. And he called, God names him, you're going to call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And Isaac will not only be your child, but he's going to grow and he's going to have children. And there's going to be great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So this expanded promise is very, very important in this text. Now, here's why I'm saying all this. Abraham hears all of it and his initial reaction is, yeah, right. you got to be kidding. Really? And God's going to reassure and say, yes, you're going to have this. He's done the laughter. And he's going to offer a more reasonable, well, here, why don't we just do this? And God says, no. I'm going to make Sarah and you to be the biological parents. I want to do a miracle child here. And it's going to be something that's going to be a phenomenal thing. And Abraham, even though he had some initial doubts, what the chapter ends up with is Abraham, as, as the chapter closes, he's moved from doubt to he really believes it. He really is confident and he's going to do exactly what God has asked him to do within this framework of this promise and of this covenant. You see, what happens in this text is God has given him information. And, and again, this is taking chapters 12, 15, and 17, and it may seem redundant to you, but it's a very important principle. What God has done is he's progressively revealed tidbits of information and gave them to Abraham as needed in this process of maturing him. He didn't give him everything at the same time, at the one time, at the very beginning. He just gave him enough information. Move here, For instance, move, go to this region. I'll tell you where to park when you get there. 
Okay, and so he moved him. He does the same thing with Abraham later on. Remember when he says, take your son, your only son, and go up and worship. And only in the process of the event does he un- unveil the different, the different necessary details as the time was needed. You don't have to sacrifice your son, I've provided a lamb. And so what he's doing in chapter 17 is dealing with an Abraham who has misunderstood or misapplied some of the promises. In chapter 17 he's giving clarification. This child isn't going to be Ishmael. Through a surrogacy you're going to have a child from you and Sarah. I need to explain this to you because you didn't get it right. You didn't respond and you're acting in a way that even though 13 years have gone by there's something better that I have for you than what you think. And when God gave him all that information, God also then is going to say, Abraham, I want you to, to respond to me in this way. And he responds in a very commendable way. His, his com, uh, commendable action, I'm going to call it the song we sang, he trusts and obeys. And it's really highlighted in this chapter, even though he stumbles for a moment and laughs for a moment, but God says to him, okay, in the course of this, is, this is the one passage where it comes up. God says, I want you to show that I have made this covenant with you, and I want you to set yourselves apart. And I'm going to ask you as the men in this family to do this practice of circumcision, and this is the institution of it in this text, where he says, this is going to be a sign that you are different from others. Even in your most private parts, you're going to be different. It's going to be a symbolic gesture that shows that you are going to be totally different, a unique people, a unique people that is going to be a clean people, a people who have, you know, as he uses in the book of Romans, cut off, you know, excess from around the heart and totally dedicated to God. And so he asks him to do this. And you read in the passage in verses 9 through 14, he gives them those explicit details of circumcising the male children on the eighth day and gives them all that data. And Abraham's response after he hears all this and he's laughed a little bit and God has reassured him, watch the end of this conversation. And he, God repeats, and we've already read this already in verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful, will multiply him. Twelve princes shall he beget. I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which, share, which Sarah shall bear unto you at this time next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Here's the response that is amazing. And Abraham took Ishmael his son and all that were born in his house and all that bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised the flesh of the foreskin in the same day. And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael his son was 13. The same day Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son and all the men in the house, born in the house, even those who were bought slavery. The, The the reaction is Abraham agrees to do this. I'm not trying to be vulgar. I'm not trying to be risque in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so understand my comments. I think this is an amazing act for them to do because this is totally countercultural. This is not normal. Okay, maybe normal in American Western culture to do this act with boys. It wasn't back then. And it was, it was a sign that in time it became a sign of ridicule towards the Jews. And so this was really something that was going to set them apart. And with, without being silly, without being ju- uh, junior highish and giggling and all that kind of stuff, this would not be a fun thing for these guys to do at this age. 
So what, they're, what he does, I mean, it's one thing when we say, you know, our boys when they're babies, we, we, you know, do this act. But these are adult men. And so Abraham agrees to this. All in his household agree to this. This is quite an amazing situation that he behaves and believes exactly as God has said. When he is hearing promises that to him initially it was, you know, it was one thing for me to sire a child, you know, 13 years ago. But now I'm older. And and more amazing is you're you're saying my wife is going to have a baby? And she's 90 years old. And the way with women isn't with her anymore. But God says, this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to tell you the time. I'm going to tell you the name, the gender. I'm giving you all this information. And Abraham, after he hears that, even though he is, he is stumbling in a moment, soon as it's concluded in the conversation, he's ready to move forward. He obeys God. He does a, a very unusual, awkward, uncomfortable deed that God has asked him to do as a uh, display of faith and trust. How did he move from giggling and doubting and conniving in verse 16? How did he move from there to the end of chapter 17, trusting and obeying without a giggle, without an apprehension? How did he do that? What was it in the conversation that convinced him? What was it that built his, to him, him up enough that when he hung up the phone with God, it was like, I have no doubts. During the conversation, there were some doubts. What did God say? What did God present to him that helped him to move in faith? Now, that's an easy thing to talk about, but it's when you and I are facing difficult moments, when all of a sudden, you know, unemployment goes too long. What keeps me trusting when all of a sudden the kids are not responding the way you thought they would respond. You train them up and all of a sudden there's a battle and they're not quite following in the ways that they should be walking. And you go, how do I trust without panicking? When all of a sudden the finances are getting tighter and tighter and you say, okay, it's one thing to trust when I have money in the bank account, but when it's depleted, what about trusting now? And all of a sudden I got whammied with a bill. What about trusting when there is an issue physically, when there is a problem? What about trusting when people around you are doubting, when all of a sudden tragedy strikes or temptation strikes? Then what do we do? Abraham trusts God because of something God said, because of some things God said, or God introduced to him in this lengthy conversation. And I think there's four aspects that God reveals about himself that helped Abraham to respond with such faith, to do the trust and obey at that moment. And I think it's very simple. It's this, God's performance. God's performance up to this point. Okay, God comes to him, and, and there's nothing specifically stated in this passage where he is reminding him, but the entire context is God speaking to him, and God is telling him how he has made him a stranger in the land, and he has moved in that point. Up to this point, God has been very, very faithful to him. God has, has proven himself totally reliable. Um, that that we, we mentioned it on Sunday, for those of you who aren't with us, we were doing the study in Nehemiah. Why is it that the king says, Nehemiah, you know, how long are you going to be? And, you know, and why, initially, why are you sad in my presence? Nehemiah is fearful. And then he explains and asks the king he can go. And the king responds very positively. Why? It's because of Nehemiah's character. 
Nehemiah's character, he has proven himself. In the same way, God has proven himself to Abraham up to this point. If I were just to jot down a few things, there would be no doubt that we would say God proved himself when he revealed himself to Abraham back in the beginning. Okay, When he comes to him again, that conversation, God repeatedly moved forward to Abraham. He approached Abraham. It started when he brought him to Canaan. He said, you go and I'm going to guide you. I'm going to give you the parking spot and the meter will be, you know, we'll leave it running and I'll make sure that there's a parking space. And it was. He's God's leading in his life that when he uh, got into the promised land, he takes the sojourn, goes down into Egypt in a, in a moment where he's struggling and battling because famine has struck, and God protects him in Egypt. Even when he tried to manipulate the situation and lied about his wife being his, his half-sister, and all of a sudden, you know, his wife's taken from him, and God protected them. God intervened so that nobody touched, nobody in the harem touched uh, Sarah and there was, there was a protection of her body, there was a protection of her, of, her, um, of her purity, if you would. And so God protects and even when it's found out that Abraham had lied to Pharaoh, you know, back in those days, what would you do to somebody typically who lied? You could kill them. And Abraham's protected. Even when he had done wrong, he gets back into the land. God prospers this guy. He says, you know, Lot, you take the best of the land. I'll take what's left over. God still blesses him after he's given up the best. He goes into battle against five local kings that have taken over Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. And he beats them in battle. God gives him a son in his old age. That's Ishmael. And he's able to sire a son. There's been, there's been acts of God, little acts of God that have been going on all along that when he's speaking to this God, this God can say, um, by the way, have I ever lied to you before? And the response is going to be, no. Have I, ever, have I ever failed you before? No. You know, I have been faithful. Isn't that amazing that God even reminds us when we deal with the most tragic situations in our life, that is the sin that we commit as Christians, that God says he is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. because We don't feel like we deserve it, and we don't. But he is faithful. And the faithfulness of God is absolutely amazing. This performance to date that we see in the lives of Bible characters time and time again is a confidence builder that should say to us, we can trust. God is faithful to the Daniels, to the men in the fiery furnace, to the disciples. God is faithful to the Jeremiah's. doesn't mean they didn't have problems, but God was faithfully helping and assisting and carrying them through. God was faithful to the Joseph in Egypt and all of the trials he went through. God was faithful and did exactly what he said. And so time and time we can say it. But even more importantly, you and I should be able to see in our own lives the moments of God's faithfulness and look back. Unfortunately, we have such short memories that sometimes we forget that what we, what we could be doing, what we should be doing, even for our family impact, is there's, there might be some real value to say, I should be journaling. I should be writing down. I should be using some of the technical devices we have that make it easier and writing down in a very simple way a diary of God's blessings. In fact, if you do that in your prayer book, 
what an impact it will have in your prayer time. Remembering God's faithfulness and how he answered this prayer, this prayer, this prayer. Take just two, two minutes, write down your answers in, your, in, a, in a notebook, in, in, your, in your page somewhere. Just record some of those things that God has done, like the answers to prayers. Write down those little God deeds that happen on a week-to-week basis where it's a God thing. All of a sudden, something, something major or something minor, and you just look and say, that was the hand of God. That was, uh, last week I think it was you, Heidi. You said you went someplace and it was a God thing. You ran into somebody at that moment. To just record those, mo- I think that was you, wasn't it? Okay. Um, there's, there's those God, God leading moments that you record and you write down. The blessings that others experience in your, in your journal to write down what Marilyn just shared, uh, shared this evening. 3,000 skip beats to 30 skip beats. Okay, what, that's a blessing. That's a God thing. That just reminds us of how and what he is. As a matter of fact, in your journal, maybe you want to write down verses that were very meaningful at a certain moment. Maybe you want to write down one of our uh, one of our seniors has done this. They have they have written down their story for their grandkids. They have taken time over a period of a couple of years and just wrote down their life story and how God led here, God led here, God led them together as a couple. And they tell their dating experience, how God led them, how God led them when they made some major business decisions and when they moved here and when they moved there. What a good story for the grandkids and the generations afterwards to hear about God's leading in their life. Record such things as, you know, even in your, in your moments, walking around, uh, to me this was always a fun thing to do, walk around the house and just write down real quickly, how did God provide this, that, or the other thing? Uh, my office, I have all kinds of mementos from trips, and that's my thing of helping to remember to pray, and sometimes makes it a praise moment to walk around the office and think about what, what happened, anything special on this trip or this occasion that, you know, that would stand out, because don't you need some of those blessings to be refreshing your mind when you get beaten up with other stuff? That when all of a sudden the, you get wore down by some of the, some of the battles going on, some of the non-successes, some of the, the difficult moments, and you say, will it work? Does it work? You know, has God, is God on my side? And you, theologically you say, yes. And you need a little reminder as, yeah, God was on my side. God did this. God, God did hear my prayers. Even when I felt low, this, 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 this. And what a pick-me-up. Abraham is able to pause and say, my God has been faithful. My God has been the one who has been persistent. He has, he has done all kinds of great things for me in the past. And when he gets in this conversation, you not only have God's performance, you also have God's persistence. And I think this is something that I would underestimate in this text if I'm not careful, is Abraham has done this a couple times. He has offered God an alternative to God's plan. I'll give you Eliezer. Here, let's bargain. Let's do, let's do a monopoly game here, God. You, know, you said this, and I'll, I'll trade you this. I'll trade you Eliezer for the problem. I'll, I'll trade you Ishmael. And God is extremely persistent. God just says very, very simply on a couple occasions, says, no, he's not going to be the one. No, Ishmael is not going to be the one. And God is going to persistently say the same thing. Three times, three different texts, you are going to be a father of many nations, or a great nation, then many nations. You're going to have kids. You're going to have sons. You're going to have children. And so that persistence comes up multiple times with expanded information. 
Okay? And so he gives them the information and he expands upon it, but it's the same story. I insist this is going to happen. I am going to do this for you. And time and time again, we read in the Word of God where Jesus is dealing with his disciples and he repeats his promises. He says to them, I will never leave you or, or, nor forsake you on more than one occasion. He says to them, I will give you another comforter on more than one occasion. Jesus Christ is saying to them, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I will more than one time. Why does he do that? Because he's being insistent. He's the person standing there and saying, I will, I will, I really, really will, and I'm not playing games with you. I am insistent that I will take care of your needs. Abraham, I promise you, uh, you can look at my past, I'm insisting I will, and I'm making it very clear to you, you're going to have children. You're going to have children from your own loins. You're going to have children from your loins and from Sarah's. And he's expanding, make it very clear, repeatedly insisting that this is going to be the case. Something else that comes out in this text. God's power or God's ability. Go back to verse 1. He says, when Abraham was 90 years old, God appeared to him and said unto him, I am the what? Almighty God. What do you have in your footnotes? What do you have in your Bible notes? What does he say actually? El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Okay, it's a word that shows up, a term that shows up several times in the Old Testament. This is the very first time that it shows up, meaning literally Almighty God. Uh, As we said, it's 48 times, and if I'm not mistaken, 31 of them are in the book of Job where it comes up about the power of God. And so the idea of El Shaddai is very clear. He is saying, I have unlimited power. My bank account has no end. My, my power is not going to be knocked out by a hurricane. I am limitless. The words that he uses are very interesting terms that he uses when he combines the words to form El Shaddai. El is your common word uh, that just meant a deity of any kind. Elohi, Elohim. They are the uh, singular, the plural form. And they could be used for, and they were used of God, but they were also used of any deity that they could use this term. And the idea simply came to mean something with power, something with might, something that had great strength. It eventually came to be the term that was used in the uh, speech at this time to mean the power of God, the almighty power of God, the limitless power of God that was involved with the deity. Shaddai comes from the word shad. Uh, The word is an unusual word. Some people say it means mountain. The majority of authors will say it has to do with the ability to nurse a child, to feed a child, to raise a child, physically provide all the nourishment that they are needed to grow so that they can come to completion or maturity. And so it came to eventually be used as a term for the person who was providing the nourishment that was needed, who was providing the strength that was needed. So that's the Shaddai. When you bring them together, you have this idea that this God is all-powerful, that he can do whatever is needed to bring you to the spot where you can handle whatever there is that needs to be handled. Abraham and Sarah in this text, Abraham and Sarah's inability is really highlighted. Abraham brings it up. Abraham laughs. The conversation is highlighted. At the very beginning, we get ages. Okay? And we're not hiding ages. Why? The author wants us to know that Abraham and Sarah can't. They are unable to. And they have to rely upon El Shaddai. El Shaddai, who can bring where there's barrenness, fruitfulness. 
where there's bringing, where there's impotency, he can bring potency. He can deal with them beyond their physical abilities. And that's the stress of the text. The text to get us to realize that El Shaddai can do anything. When you feel absolutely powerless, El Shaddai. Now, here's a question I have that comes to Why did God wait so long? Why didn't he 25 years earlier when they first came into the land, why was he so silent? Why does he wait roughly 25 years before he says, oh, by the way, next year's the baby? He could have done it at any time. In fact, why does he have them going through month by month looking to see if there's going to be a baby? And disappointment, disappointment, and discouragement. Why does he allow them to go through a quarter of a century of that? Why does he wait until they're 99 and 90? It could be a testing of their faith. Okay, it is his plan, but why? Is there, any, any, is there something here that is highlighted and evident that he, the reason why he would have waited in this plan? He's making it, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, Jeremy, that's it. He is making it very, very clear to everyone this is no fluke. This is not like, oh, that's kind of bizarre. Okay, this is, Jay, you want to add to it? Yeah, I was looking that up. I, yeah, I was looking that up because I have that footnote too, but I couldn't find where it was. Do you have a reference? Yeah, and when I looked it up, it was in which chapter 17? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure where they get the 130. I looked it up, and in Genesis 12, it says he's 70 years old when he begat Abram, Haran, and, and uh, Terah is the son, the father's name and the son's name. And so I'm not sure how that was figured. Yeah, yeah, and I have the same footnote, but I'm not sure what the conclusion was, and I didn't, I stopped researching it after a point. But, but let, me add, let me add to what you're saying, Jay. Okay, if you go back in Genesis 11, some of the men were having children at 230 years of age. Is one of the ages given for having children. So we're in that transition time earlier where, remember, they were living that longer span of life. And so Abraham could have, could, could say here at this point, you know, my, my, my grandfather was having kids at 200 years old. But again, their lifespan is changing. It's drastically going down. Because Abraham lives to what? 125? 140? He passes? And so they're seeing that decline that's going in there. So. Okay, she was the one that was in that age group. Yeah. 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 The emphasis, again, in this text, the emphasis is going to be the idea, especially of Sarah, that she cannot be bearing children because of her age. And there's, you know, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I found that interesting, and I forgot to even add that. I'm glad you brought up that there was some of his ancestors who were older than him having children. I don't know about the wives, but the men were at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
okay, is, the, is, there, is that a perpetual reminder of how Abraham responded and who else laughs later on? Sarah, in the next chapter, Sarah is listening to the conversation and she hears she's going to have a baby and her response is she laughs and the angels say, why is she laughing? And she says, I wasn't laughing. It wasn't me, it was somebody else. Okay. So is the laughter reflecting on what they responded? Or is it a reminder? Or is it the, the joy of it? I think it's both, not. Because you know, it's a daily reminder. You laughed at when I gave this boy. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's, some of these details are really fascinating in the text. But I think what we're getting out of this text is that whole El Shaddai idea. God introduces himself saying, when you're weak, I am strong. And it's very evident that Abraham is in the mindset that Abraham has come to the point that he realizes, for lack of better English, it ain't us. This is an act of God. This is a miracle of God. Let me give you one other thought here, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, I want to move on here for a second. Here we go. God's knowledge. In the text, there's also God's knowledge. What I'm pulling out here in the text is when God speaks to Abraham, down in verse 15, um, he's he's got all kinds of knowledge that he's sharing with them. And the knowledge that he shares is Abraham's, Sarah's going to have the baby. Uh, She's going to have, just like you, great nations, kings, this prophecy. Then he's going to share with him as well, Sarah, verse 19, Sarah's going to have a baby. It's going to be a son. Okay? This is, remember, this is before ultrasounds. Okay? You're going to have a, a son. You're going to call his name. He's going to be everlasting covenant, his seed forever. Look at verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will make him, and I will bless him, and make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. And how many royalties coming from him? Yeah, very specific. The details here is what I'm getting at is this. God knows exactly what's going to happen in the details of their life. And so Sarah, being the mother, bearing the son, the son surviving one year from now, it's going to happen. And Ishmael, God knows all these details. Why is it easy to trust God? He's powerful. Why is it easy to trust God? He knows what's happening. He knows exactly what's happening. You know, it's like, you know, none of you would do this, but I do this sometimes historically, reading something and say, it'd be kind of cool to go back in history and go and get involved with this situation, and I know the results already. Then I wouldn't mind, well, guess what? God knows the results already. He knows where everything is going. So in trusting him, I can trust him for these reasons. And I think some of this is where Abraham is. God has been faithful. He keeps his word. He has kept his word all the way along. He insists he's going to. He has the ability to do. He knows everything that's ahead of me. So why wouldn't I trust and obey him? Why wouldn't I be the individual that would say, hey, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put more trust, more confidence in this Lord God that we worship. And you and I have a whole lot more progressive revelation than Abraham had. We know a whole lot more about this God that, we, that he served, that we should be able to trust him so much more. There's a guy, Mark Little is his name, he wrote of an instance in his life that he looked back on years later and he says, here was something that happened in his childhood that he has never forgotten. It recurred several times. Let me read what he wrote. He says, as a child, I loved to curl up in the back seat of our car. By the way, this picture, I cannot find a picture on the internet that shows a kid sitting on a car seat, curled up sleeping, because 
They don't do that at all today, okay? And so you can't find anything way back. And so I'm just using this one. But the kid would curl up in the back seat, and he said, I felt so safe, curled up in the back seat with Dad driving. But sometimes my grandmother would go with us in the car. She would sit on the very edge of her seat, barking instructions about every car that was coming our way. Watch the side of the roads there. Be careful with that guy next to us. Don't go so fast. I don't think she ever enjoyed a ride, ever. Why? Because she simply didn't trust my father. She couldn't rest in his care. Grandmother and I both reached the same destination. But one got there with frazzled nerves while the other one arrived happy and rested. I was learning to rest in my father's care. What a good illustration of you and I sitting in the back seat, unbuckled, okay, but trusting in our father's care and not panicking. That's a, that seems to be where Abraham gets to at the end of chapter 17. That's where I want to be at the end of each day. What about you?